0: The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. With that in our minds and our hearts, let us read the word of the Lord to begin our time together. I invite you to stand as I read the first two verses. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we come now. And as I have uttered, what a, what a privilege to share in your word. That you have made your word known to us. It is, it is not hidden away in some secret cave for us to go and to hunt for and hope that we find you have revealed it. You have made it known to us. It is in the language in which we can comprehend today and we thank you for the clarity of your word. Now, Lord, we recognize the awesome responsibility that as we approach your word, may we approach it as you would have us. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. We pray and we plead in Jesus name. Amen. You can be seated. Moses wrote Genesis to God's people, Israel. The first people to read Genesis chapter 22, to hear it proclaimed. We're hearing the same message that we hear today. That Yahweh, the Lord God, the one true God, He and He alone can be trusted to provide redemption. I confess, I have preached on this text before. There are sermons in my files, one in particular, to where I've taken this text and made Abraham the main character and Isaac the supporting actor and Jesus as an afterthought. The main character of this text is not Abraham. The main character of this text is the Lord our God. It is the Lord God who tests Abraham, and it is the Lord our God who provides a substitute, and it is the Lord our God who fulfills his promise. Abraham is a supporting actor. He responds to the Lord by faith and obedience. So let's look at that together. First, God tests Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. After these things, what does that mean? After the birth of Isaac. After this transpired, then God tested Abraham. Now, what in the world does that mean? That God tested Abraham? Really? Really says that in the Bible, that God tested Abraham? Now, let's make sure we clear up what this does not mean. Those of you reading the King James, I'm not opposed to the King James, a wonderful translation of the scripture, but it was translated into English 400 years ago, and people used words differently. And here's one of those prime examples the King James reads, And God tempted Abraham. Does that mean that God entices Abraham with evil? James 1.13 clears that up. Let no one say that he, when he is tempted, that he is tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The better translation of the word here is tested. That God tested Abraham. Now for us to understand that, I'm going to back up a second and look at the bigger picture, the entire story. That God comes to Abraham, a pagan man living in a pagan country among a pagan family, and he calls him to himself. He makes a promise to Abraham that he will make Abraham a great nation. The simple response, Genesis chapter 12, verse four, Abraham went. In response to what God says, he follows, he obeys. On multiple other occasions, God speaks to Abraham and gives further explanation of what he means in this promise to make him a great nation. He says that his descendants would be as many as the dust of the earth and on another occasion as the stars of the sky. But we're told from the beginning that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren and that Abraham himself, at the beginning of this, is 75 years old. 25 years pass. Then this 100-year-old man and this barren 90-year-old woman have a son, and they name him Isaac. He is the son of the promise. Quote, the greatest test in the life of Abraham came after he finally received the promise. He was to give his son back to God through sacrifice. It was one thing to trust the Lord while waiting for the promise, but it was quite another thing to continue to trust the word of the Lord when it called for the patriarch to do what seemed unreasonable. Would Abraham cling to the child that God had given him? The child in which the future was based? Would he continue to obey? The test was designed to see to what extent he would obey. This text brings us face-to-face With this reality, God is God. He is the God who delivers. He is also the one who prohibits any alternative God, any alternative trust. He insists, this one true God insists on being trusted only and totally. So inside of you, you're asking a question that I've asked. Places that my mind is going and sometimes let it go further than I should. Is this right? How can you believe in a God who tests? Then, if you back up for a moment and you reflect on the scripture, you see. That throughout scripture, God insists on undivided loyalty. And this runs in the face of what I call civil religion. Civil religion says you believe in your God, I believe in my God. They're all actually the same. So what we need to do since they're all the same, we all just need to tolerate each other. We're all free to interpret it how we see it. Then we read an instance like this where God tests. And, And what it confronts inside of us is do we really believe the faith in which we claim? This is the issue with Abraham. Abraham, do you really believe God? So he said, verse 2, here's the test. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. I want you to ask yourself a question. What verse in the Bible does this sound like? Take your son, your only son, whom you love. What does that sound like? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Don't you think for a moment, friend, that Genesis 22 was not in the mind of Jesus when he spoke that text. God gave his only son. And don't think for a moment that this text was not pointing us to the moment when the only son would come. I consider these two major understatements here. Take your only son, and God's clear here, Isaac. Remember, he has a son by another woman, Ishmael, that he's not the son of the promise. And God's been emphatic about this now over several years that Ishmael's not the one, Isaac is the one. That you take your son, Isaac, second understatement, whom you love. And think of the crisis that Abraham is brought to here. Now he's somewhere over 110, 115 years old. This son here in front of him, and he's told to take him and to sacrifice him, then he's given a specific location. You take him to the land of Moriah. 2 Chronicles 3, 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the location of the temple, is the location of temple sacrifice. It's the location where outside the gates of the city The Lamb of God was slain. He says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains, which I tell you, quote, each phrase becomes more painful and difficult for Abraham. The long-awaited son would be the victim. We are left with the inexplicable exacting realization that faith demands radical obedience. Now, before we get to the obedience of Abraham, I need to take a sidebar for a moment. I need to say this, and this is a good moment to, to make my point strong because his kind of language is rampant in Gastonia. Well, God told me. I always cringe when somebody walks up to me on Sunday. But God told me to tell you, preacher. I'm going to tell you what's automatically going on in my head. hmm. God has what he told me. This is enough for me, it's enough. Friends, this ought to be enough for you. This is sufficient. It's a tenet of what we believe here in this church, the sufficiency of Scripture. Second, you better be careful with the God told me language. Abraham did not have some fault. I ought to go kill my son. That'd be a good idea. If you think God is speaking to you, and if somebody's going to come up to me immediately after service, don't you believe the Holy Spirit leads people? Yes. But the Holy Spirit never, ever, ever, ever leads somebody contrary to the Bible. Ever. Never. Second danger, when you use the language God spoke to me, is that you hear me say it must never conflict with the Scripture, so you'll go find one verse to line up with it. Jim Jones had verses he quoted. If you don't know who Jim Jones is, go home and look it up. He's dangerous. You can quote the Bible out of context to confer what you say. Friends, the Bible's enough. It's sufficient. We look to his word and what God has said, and it is enough to occupy my life in obedience for the rest of my life. Abraham responds now with faith and obedience. He rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut wood for the burnt offering and he rose with him and he rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now I say he responds with faith and obedience. You say, well, I don't see the word faith. I don't see anything about faith in here. Folks, faith is obvious. You know how faith is obvious? He obeys. Why else would he go? Why else would he do this? He is responding to God, and his intent is obvious. He's going to fully obey. This is not just a momentary obedience. God didn't say, sacrifice your son, build an altar right now, Abraham, and sacrifice your son. Look at this, verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This is protracted obedience. This takes place over days. Imagine what's going on in Abraham's mind as he's making this trek Up the mountains, and this is up, if you've ever been to Jerusalem. He went up into the mountains to this location of what he's he's thinking. No record, though. No discussion. There's no mention of what Abraham felt. We don't even say, I think, anymore in this culture. We say, I feel. We are driven by what we feel. Abraham's driven by what God said. And the only report that we have here of Abraham is that he complies with the hard instructions of God. Then we come to verse five. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham states his mission. Now, in the Hebrew... It says, it's translated here, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The implication on all of these actions is we are going to go over there, we are going to worship, and we are coming back. So what does Abraham mean here? We're going to go over there, we're going to worship, and we're going to come back. Is, is Abraham going to get over there on Mount Moriah and back out? Is that his plan? No. Hebrews is, defines this for us. So I going to invite you to turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So the question is, why would he do this? The answer? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, so look up here and listen to me. He didn't. Abraham just didn't believe what God was saying right here in this moment. Go sacrifice your son. And respond in obedience. Abraham is still believing and responding in obedience to God's promise. That through his seed, through the promised son, is going to come the promised one, the seed, who is Christ. He still believes this. And he believes that if he sacrifices this boy, that God's going to raise him from the dead. That's what he's trusting in. That's what he's believing. Quote, in the final analysis, Isaac was brought back twice from the dead. Once from Sarah's dead womb, and once again from the high altar on Mount Moriah. Now, we come to verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. The wood on Isaac, his son. Just hear John 19 17. And he went out bearing his cross. And he, that is Abraham, took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac's clued in. He's the one. And how does Abraham now respond? Don't miss it. This, this. This right here is the turning point of the text, friend. Here's, here's where the gospel begins to focus in for us. God will provide, what are the next two words? For himself. See, this is God's promise. This is not just about Abraham's kid. This is God's promise. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So both of them went on together. This implies, at least, that Isaac shares the faith of his father. At a minimum, Isaac trusts his father. There's no record that either one of them speak. It's a solemn procession now to the top of the mountain. This is masterful storytelling. and We watch movies now. We don't read stories. So let me help you see this if this was a movie. The story's been moving quick now. You've just been getting scenes. Now we're in slow motion. We're on the top of the mountain, and Abraham's building an altar. He laid the wood in order, and then he binds his son Isaac. Now, for those of you in your mind that think Isaac is a small child, remember this boy's old enough and strong enough to carry a bundle of wood up a mountain. People think he's somewhere between the ages of 10 and 16 at this point. Let me just say this, he's got a 115 year old father. He could have fought back, he could have ran. But his father binds him. You say, well, if he wasn't gonna run, why does he bind him? What's gonna be your natural reaction when somebody comes over the top of you with a knife? there he is on top of the wood and the narrative now reaches its most fateful moment even the single movements of Abraham are recorded for us then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife and then these emphatic words to slaughter his son it doesn't say just to take his life to kill him uses this strong language to slaughter his son. Again, I'm quoting. There he stood, the old man with his only hope, but he did not doubt. He did not look anxiously to the right or to the left. He did not challenge heaven with prayer. He knew that it was... Almighty God who was trying him. He knew that it was the hardest sacrifice that could be required of him. And he knew also that no sacrifice was too hard when God required it. And he drew the knife. He took it to slaughter his son. Praise God that he is the same God who both sets the test in his sovereignty is the one who is resolved to keep His grace. In a world that we live, where all kinds of worldviews are being brought to bear, even while I'm preaching here, as you're thinking in your mind, affected by humanism and science and naturalism, secular thought, a claim that God would provide is a scandalous thought for people. Even faithful people are tempted to only want half. In other words, a God who provides. Even a complacent person in religion wants a God who provides, but never, ever a God who tests. No. Our culture will not tolerate this. We are moderns. We are self-attesting. We are free. We are competent. But our father Abraham confessed himself neither free from testing nor competent to provide. In all of this, Abraham trusts God. Then God provides a ram. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. I'm I'm back in Hebrews now. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, it was as good as done. He He was microseconds from plunging the knife into his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now think about that with me. God responds to Abraham here and says, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And he, 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 he then offers up, we're gonna see in just a second, the provision. But I, I don't want you to lose this. God himself's gonna go all the way. God himself is going to slaughter his son. Abraham and Isaac point us to Christ, but they do not fulfill what the father and the son do on our behalf. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Here's the clear point to Christ. The ram is a substitute. Isaac is not the Christ figure in this text. The ram is. The ram dies in Isaac's place. This sets in motion what God is going to do to lead us to the Redeemer, to Jesus Christ himself. In the book of Leviticus, it says, verse 1 of chapter 1, the Lord calls Moses and spoke to him from the tent of the meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. In his offering is a burnt offering from the herd. He shall offer a male without blemish, He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting that it may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. It's symbolic. Laying the hands is the transfer of this animal is taking the punishment for my sin. Now here's the problem with the sacrificial system. The animal is taking the punishment for the atoning work for the sin committed to this moment. Problem is, tomorrow I'm going to what? So next year, i got to come back and i got to offer again. And This sacrificial system then goes on for a long period of time. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that something different's coming, which Genesis 22 is pointing us to. In Isaiah 53, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned aside everyone to his own way. And here it is. And the Lord has laid on him, this sacrificial lamb has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the Lord provides a ram, not as a matter of chance, it is the clear plan and provision of God. This is God's plan for us, fulfilled in Christ. Abraham sees this. It says, so Abraham called, I mean, back in Genesis 22, the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said on this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The word here for The Lord will provide is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. You know what literally the word Jireh literally means in the Hebrew? It means sees. The God who sees. You know, you get the implication of this? The God who sees our need provides for our need. God sees our need for a Savior, and he provides for that need through Christ. Abraham says, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, I I can't give you this experience except vicariously, okay? (laughs) But I'm standing on the Temple Mount, and it all came together. On this mountain, God provided. There's no temple there anymore, and that's on purpose because our hope is not in a temple system any longer. Our hope is in Christ. And it was no grand spectacle, friend. It was such a humiliating moment that they took him outside the gates and killed him. But make no mistake about it. On the mountain, the Lord provided. He provided for my salvation and yours. In verse 15 and 22, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates, the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is a restatement of the covenant. It's an assurance of God's blessing and God's promise that from Abraham, the offspring will come who will possess the gates of the enemy. Jesus came and he plundered the devil. He defeated him on the cross. And this message of the gospel is to be a blessing and to be shared with all the nations of the earth. Now, the question is this. Did Abraham comprehend all this at Mount Moriah? The Bible answers the question, by the way, so be careful before you answer too fast. Did Abraham comprehend this? You know what the answer is? You bet he did. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. I want you to wrap your mind around this with me right now. The jig that Abraham danced on Mount Moriah was not simply because he didn't have to kill his son. The joy that Abraham knew on Mount Moriah was that the Messiah, the Lamb of God, was coming to take away the sins of the world. He saw it, and he was glad. So the question is, do you see the beauty and the glory of God in the redeeming work of Christ? Are you rejoicing with Abraham? So I ask you this question today. You need to ask yourself this question. Am I trusting, rejoicing in Christ, Jesus Christ alone as the substitute for my sin and salvation? Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I don't don't have time to walk you through all this. But if you go back and meditate with your Bible this afternoon, here's what you're going to see. Chapter 4 is going to walk you through Abraham and the connection. Because Abraham's got everything to do with what God says here in Romans chapter five. The Bible is one unified story, friend. It's not a group of random stories. It's one unified story. Now watch this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Question, was God waiting for you to move? You're not sure? No. Most of you have grown up with a religion, been preached to you, where God is waiting, He's waiting, He's waiting, He's waiting. God didn't wait for you. If God had waited for you, He would still be waiting. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He goes further. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Paul says, you might die for a good guy. But a rascal? Uh-uh. No, you're not going to do it. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners... Not just sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. All right. I know I've been preaching for a while and it's time for me to be done, right? Will you give me two minutes to listen to what I'm gonna say next? Here's what's vastly different than what took place when Abraham and Isaac were on Mount Moriah and the ram was 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 offered. The ram simply took Isaac's place so that the promised son could continue and next week you're going to find have a wife and continue to produce seed leading us to Jesus. Here's the major difference. That ram simply died. Jesus Christ did not simply die. Jesus Christ took the wrath of God. On him, on the cross, he died in our place. He was not just our substitute. This is big words. He was the penal substitute. That means he received our punishment. He received what we justly deserved and he took it upon himself that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now shall we be reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, track with me, don't don't, don't get lost. He took the wrath of God on him. He took what we deserved and he reconciled us to God. You say, what does that mean? Now, let's imagine I go stand way over there in the corner as an illustration, all right? I'm not going to because it drives the camera guys nuts when I walk around too much. And I went over there and I said, I'm in my little corner of heaven. I'm over here with the rest of the boys. We just sent her saved by grace over here. We barely got in. Bless God. Barely got here. Let me just tell you something clear and emphatically. If that's your attitude, you ain't getting nowhere. That barely got in language is saying you brought something to the table. And friend, that is an affront to what Jesus did on the cross. Because what Jesus did on the cross says you bring nothing. To the table. Let me press it further. Not only did Jesus bear the wrath of God, if that's all he would have done, I could understand we're over here in a little corner of heaven, we're barely in there. Jesus also reconciled us. You know what that means? That we're going to be brought into the very presence of God and we're going to stand face to face in his presence, fully reconciled Fully right with God through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. You know what that ought to do? That ought to bring joy. That ought to bring joy to your heart because that's true right now. Now, this drives Paul as he continues to write in Romans and he comes over here to the end of chapter 8. All right, track with me. I'm about done. I'm, I'm making an application here. He comes over here to the end of chapter 8 and he's asking the question that everybody in Rome's asking. Why are we suffering? God, have you forgot us? Now, why am I preaching this? Why am I saying this today? Because we painted this American veneered version of Christianity that God would never let his people suffer. Wrong. 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 Where is our hope then when we suffer? Where is the hope when we get tested in our faith? When the culture presses in on us and says, you're going to be Christians or not? You're going to act like you're followers of Jesus or not? You're going to be true to me or not? When it presses in, what do you do? Here's the answer, Romans 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Go ahead. If God is for us, who ultimately can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you understand this? That the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ does not just motivate you to believe on Jesus and be saved. It motivates you every day of your life to live for Jesus. God sees you. God provides for you. Even in the midst of great difficulty. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, we're identifying with Jesus what we do. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross and what? Follow me. We identify our lives with the Savior. Verse 37. So he's asking the question. There's, there's a question in the text. Are we failures? Has God failed? Has he failed you? Answer, No. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The point of this book, friends, is that God makes the ultimate sacrifice, not you. God sent his only son who bore your wrath He bore what you deserved on the cross, and he has brought you in when you believe on Jesus Christ into right relationship with him. That is forever and forever. Would you agree with me that the world desperately needs to hear this? The world doesn't need some more of this tolerant civil religion junk. The world needs to clearly see Christians who live their lives in full obedience to God who declare a joyful message that Jesus Christ is the glorious substitute who died on our behalf, who rules and reigns, and who is coming again for his own. May you find joy in your Savior this day. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and plead now for men and women in this room, who are still holding on to their own form of religion or their lack thereof or their desire not to have one. God, I pray that today that you would confront the sinfulness of man and that you would call people to yourself. And I pray today for those who have compartmentalized their faith into some corner of their life. I pray that today the waves of joy would sweep over them and that together we would rejoice in Christ who alone is our substitute. Who alone has set us free who alone has bore the wrath of our sin lord jesus thank you for what you have accomplished and we confess that only you can now lead us by faith to rejoice in you we pray in jesus name amen thanks for listening to this audio presentation from parkwood baptist church located in gastonia north carolina please feel free to share this message with others For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.